So Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24, it says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So this week we come to the end of our Explore God series, and thus far we've, we've looked at some of the difficult questions that many people struggle with concerning uh, the existence of God and the meaning of life, the, the purpose of suffering the exclusivity of Christianity, the divinity of Jesus, and the reliability of the Bible. And so the question that we'll come to and attempt to answer this week is the question of can I know God personally, which happens to be the one question that's probably more personal than any of the other questions that we've discussed. And so like many of these other questions, the short answer is yes. But also like many of these other questions, you'll, you'll find several different answers based on several different opinions. So if you're like me, you've probably had several conversations with all kinds of people about uh, whether God can be known personally or uh, more particularly how he can be known personally. And so just again, in my own experiences, I've heard people uh, say that God can be known primarily through reflecting on nature and getting, out, getting outdoors or through contemplation or meditation. I've heard others say that God can be known through a still small voice on the inside of us, like your conscience or Jiminy Cricket. Others have said, Oprah has said that God is a personal force that guides you to your destiny. To others, God is nothing more than a genie, someone who's really only present and there to engage in one-sided dialogue uh, with us giving him the requests or demands, and he never says anything contrary to our agendas. And on the other hand, there are those who say that God can't be known at all, not in an atheistic way per se, as if he doesn't exist at all, but more in a a deistic way, that if there is a God, then we don't know anything about him and he doesn't want to have anything to do with us. So these are all personal opinions concerning this question that never, if we're honest, seem to be based on anything more than experiences or, or guesses, which is why for many people in our day, God is whoever or whatever we want him to be. And we pursue him however we choose to. And this is a conception of God that always seems to be changing. So uh, in an article titled Redefining God, written in the Wall Street Journal in uh, the year 2000, which seems like forever ago, it stated this concerning the changing perception of God. It said, uh, across the country, the faithful are redefining God. Dissatisfied with conventional images of an authoritarian or paternalistic deity, people are embracing quirky individualistic conceptions of God to suit their own spiritual needs. Although a steady 90% of Americans continue to say that they believe in God, the number of those who say no standard definition comes close to their notion of the deity has more than doubled in the past 20 years, according to market research firm Roper Starch Worldwide Incorporated. Instead, even many traditionalists increasingly envision a God who is far more amorphous, accessible, and above all, down here than the old bearded man in the sky who has long dominated Western religion. So while God is continuously being redefined in our society, changing according to everyone's personal preferences, there there still remains a clear and truthful picture of who God is and how we can know him. 
and that's found in the Bible. And so last week we focused on the Bible as God's word, the way in which God reveals himself to us. And so this week we'll focus on who this God of the Bible is and who he is in relation to us and how we can know him. And so today we'll just look at three major points about uh, how we can know God personally. One, God is relational. Two, God is personal. And three, how can we know God? And so if I were, if I were trying to, to briefly answer this question again of how can I know God personally, the answer would be yes, certainly God can be known. And God can be known because he is relational. It's one thing if we were to, to sit in a science class and learn information about the sun, that it's 93 million miles away or, or to know its temperature. And it's another thing altogether to experience the warmth that the sun gives and the light that it brings. One of the great things about the Bible is that it doesn't just paint or give us a description of God or just leave us only with information about him. It tells us, and God himself tells us through the pages of the Bible that he can be known. And it's because of this that Christians, followers of Jesus, that we're not deists. We're not those who believe that God did indeed create the universe, but now remain sort of indifferent to it, choosing not to intervene in it. We believe that from the beginning and even prior to the beginning, God has always been relational. And so without getting too much into the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the God of the Bible that we see consists of three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the the Holy Spirit, equal in essence and distinct in persons. And so from before the, the foundation of the world, from before the world began, the triune God existed in eternal fellowship with one another, in pleasure, in life, and in community. And all throughout scripture, we see how the Father glorifies the Son and is pleased with him. We see how the Son glorifies the Father and magnifies him, and we see that the Spirit of God glorifies the Son of God. And so it's this fellowship, it's in this fellowship, this intimate knowledge of, this life and this fullness and completeness of joy that God has within himself and he invites us into as John writes about in one of his letters. In 1 John chapter 1 verse 3 it says, that that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and his Son Jesus Christ. And so without jumping ahead too soon as to how we can know God personally, this scripture, it points to the fellowship that God has within himself, which then overflows, inviting us into it. And so again, we see that God is relational and has always been relational. And out of that eternal fellowship that we see that the Trinity has, and the the, the Trinity has created the universe and has redeemed it. And furthermore, out of the fellowship of the Trinity, God has made and created us. He says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, let us make man in our image. Meaning that as a relational being, God created us as relational beings because we are made in his image. We're created to be relational people, experiencing the joys of relationships such as our children-to-parent relationships, friendships, marriages, and parent-to-children relationships. And the joy that we experience in our relationships is only a shadow of the fullness of life and joy that is experienced in the fellowship of God. We are relational because God is relational, and ultimately we're created to enjoy fellowship with Him. 
We see this again all throughout the pages of the Bible. God creates us to enjoy fellowship with him in Genesis. God meets and walks with Adam and Eve in a garden. And in Revelation, God closes the age by dwelling with his people in a city and feasting with them at a marriage banquet. And in between those two events, we see that mankind disobediently chooses to to sever our relationship with God. And yet still, this relational God pursues us not choosing to end the relationship for good, but making provision to continue the fellowship that he's established with us in the beginning. And so in the Old Testament, we see that God pursues Noah favorably, saving he and his family and making a covenant with them. We see that he pursues a a Chaldean moon worshiper named Abram, changing his name to Abraham, making a covenant with him, calling him friend. We see that God comes down and he physically wrestles with Jacob, breaking his hip before Jacob says, bless me. We see that God is a powerfully silent ally of Joseph, with him even in the midst of his string of of seriously unfortunate events. We see that God introduces himself to Moses with his personal and intimate name, I am that I am. Later on in Exodus, we see that he speaks to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. We see that this God walks and redeems his people out of the bondage of Egypt and walks with them through the sands of the wilderness, feeding them, fighting for them, and protecting them and providing for them. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see that this wasn't always an easygoing relationship. Just like any other relationship, this one between God and his people had its strains, it had its highs and its lows. His commitment to them is often pictured as a a marriage or a parent-child relationship. God gives himself to his people. He provides for them. He wants their love and their faithfulness, desiring to make them a people for his own possession. And so furthermore, we see that God, he shows that he's relational because he speaks to his people through the prophets. He teaches them. He he warns them. He corrects them. He states this again in Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. This verse, it it means that God desires relationship with his people, and he wants us to boast in it, to place our hope, our joy, our delight, and our confidence in knowing God and understanding him. And so again, this is much more than simply knowing information about God. It's a knowing that experiences him a knowing that experiences his steadfast love, his justice on our behalf, and his righteousness throughout the earth. God also says in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 and 34, that the greatest evidence of this new covenant that God will make with his people is that they will know me, is what he says. From the least of them to the greatest. So God is relational because of the fellowship that he has within himself and also the fellowship that he pursues with his people. And so what's even more than this is that God has gone to great lengths in order to pursue a relationship with people that they would know him. And the reason that he's gone to such great lengths is because the people that he chooses don't always want that. They reject him. 
They disobey him. They turn their backs on him. They boast and they place their confidence in other things, in wisdom, in might, in other relationships, in their strength. And so to just modernize it, God's people often put him in the friend zone. They only call him when they need something. They'd rather have the kind of relationship with him that all the other nations have with their gods, a silence with provision, a variety of options and no commitment when it comes to, uh, and when it comes to looking for provision and looking for a God. And yet God continues to pursue relationship with his people. And so in the Old Testament, throughout all these ups and downs, the successes and failures of his leaders and his people, God continues to be patient with them and committed to them. He goes to great lengths to, to remain in relationship with his people but he'll go even further. And so as we see throughout the Old Testament, as close and as as near as God had been with his people, he gets even closer. He gets much more personal in the pursuit of making himself known in the New Testament. And so we see that God spoke to his people through the prophets, through visions, through signs. He displayed wonders on their behalf, showing his power, showing his love and his grace and even his corrective discipline. And so we've seen that God shows that he's relational. He desires to secure a people who he can commune with. But in the Bible, God also shows that he is personal. As relational as he's displayed himself to be with his people in the Old Testament, God has shown that he is personal in the New Testament. And so God, in a much greater way, makes himself known supremely through Jesus. When Hebrews chapter one, uh, verse one says, it says God spoke in various ways to our fathers by the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So whereas God gave his name to Moses and to his people to make himself known, he now gives his only begotten son, the very word of God that created all things to be made flesh and live and dwell among us. Whereas God displayed his greatness in conquering the armies of Pharaoh and protecting his people from their enemies, through Jesus, he displays his greatness in a much more personal way, humbling himself, serving his people, being made like them, empathizing with them. And so we see that when Jesus speaks, he isn't speaking as a prophet or as a messenger of God, he speaks as God directly. And therefore to know Jesus is to know God. To see Jesus is to behold God. All throughout the gospels we see several things that Jesus says concerning this. And he says as he's speaking to his opponents in the gospel of John, if you knew me, you would know my father also. He said to his disciples on the night before his crucifixion, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And so just after that, the blind disciples, uh, what Philip, he makes this request explicitly saying, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus responds, have I been so long with you and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Furthermore, Jesus also said things like, I and the, I and the Father are one. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. And he makes it even clearer when he says things like, no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. 
Again, the Bible tells us that in addition to God being relational, he is personal. And the personality of God is most clearly seen in the person of Jesus. Therefore, to know Jesus is to know God. And to know Jesus personally is to know God personally. John says it best as he introduces Jesus as the preexistent son of God. He says this about him, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. So can we know God personally? Yes, we can know God personally through Jesus. And as Shelby talked about a few weeks back, this is an exclusive statement, yet it's also inclusive. God has chosen to make himself supremely known only through the person of Jesus Christ. Not through nature, not through an ethereal experience, not through Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder, not through the small voice in your head, or the voices of those who say that there are other ways to God. God makes himself known personally through Jesus. And so now that we know that God is knowable and that God is personal, let's just stop and ask the question before we proceed and address the how we can know God personally. Why should we know God personally? Why do we even need to know God at all? Good question. We should know God personally because it's why we were created. Firstly, this statement points to the fact that we are all created. We're not independent or self-created beings with self-appointed purposes. By ourselves, we don't determine meaning for our lives or purpose for them. Our God, our creator has determined the meaning and the purpose for our lives and how our worth is determined supremely through knowing him and living for him. God's word tells us through several places that when he creates us, he creates us for himself. And when he redeems us, he redeems us for himself. But just as Jeremiah testifies, we attempt to find meaning and we place our confidence and worth in our wisdom, our might, our riches, our strength, and our things. And we attempt to pursue these things ultimately because we believe that through them we'll obtain complete happiness, joy, satisfaction, meaning, and purpose. And yet, if we're honest, these things always leave us hanging because they're insufficient to give us that. And so because of their insufficiency, we start this sort of cycle all over again. We start this cycle of of pursuing more or better versions of these things, more money, more knowledge, a better career, a better spouse, a bigger house, a better reputation, more achievements, thinking that if we just reached our self-appointed purpose in life, then we'll find satisfaction, meaning, and worth, and then rid ourselves of the emptiness and the insufficiency that these all things bring us. And so we see that we've been created by God for God, for his purposes. And just as God gave Adam and Eve breath so that they would function and live according to his purposes, the life and the breath that each one of us has today is owed to no one other than God. And because God is the essence of of joy and, and life and satisfaction, he wants us to experience the same as we live according to how he has purposed us. Robert spoke about the purpose of our lives a few weeks back in this series and how God's purpose for us intersects our quest in finding our greatest joy and ultimate satisfaction. The Bible tells us that both our ultimate purpose and our ultimate joy are found ultimately in God. It's the way that we've been wired. 
God commands us to delight ourselves in him and pursue the pleasure and the joy found in him because this is how he is made much of or glorified. It's how he's shown to be all-sufficient, true, all-powerful, pure, and all-satisfying. And this is how we experience and display joy and satisfaction that we look so hard for. Because God created us, he doesn't make us choose between living for his glory and pursuing our joy. And so in addition to this, we also need to know God personally because it's how we are designed. Again, as I stated previously, the Trinity lives in perfect relational fellowship with completeness of joy, life, and satisfaction. And this overflows into God's creation of us in his image. And because God is a relational being, we are relational beings. And because of this, we experience a certain level of joy and fulfillment in our relationships with one another. We were not made to be isolated. We enjoy the moments and the realities of being sons and daughters, husbands and wives, friends, aunts, uncles, and and co-workers. But in the same sinful way that, that we treat our things, we attempt to find ultimate satisfaction and meaning and worth in our relational identities. And we're often let down by the satisfaction that, or the dissatisfaction that comes from these relationships when it comes to being fulfilled in life. And so, again, we, as we pursue completeness in these relational identities and they fail us, we try to make up the difference in ourselves uh, or in the pursuit of more or better relationships to the same unsatisfactory end. We think that if I was just a better parent, if I was just a better husband or wife or son or daughter, then, then I'd have worth. Then I'd have meaning. Or on the other hand, if I don't have this identity, if I'm not a good parent, if I'm not a good son, daughter, husband, wife, then I'm worthless, then I don't have meaning. Our relationships with others end up being the determiner of our worth when we place them and look to find ultimate satisfaction in them. But God has made us relational ultimately so that we might be in relationship with him. He's made us beings that know and love and feel so that we might know him, love him, and feel him. This is why throughout the Bible we see how God's relationship with his people is compared to that of a parent and a child, a husband and a wife, a friendship. These relationships and the joy experienced in them are, again, only a dim shadow of the completeness of joy that we are meant to experience in our relationship and our being in communion with God in knowing him. So we need to know God personally because it's what we are created for and it's what we are designed for and it's what we reflect as his image bears each and every day of our lives. And more than that, we need to know God personally because we've missed it when it comes to doing this as we should. Because of our sin and because of God's holiness and his judgment on sin, our rejection of God as author and originator of our lives. Because of that, we've become separated and alienated from him and from the ultimate joy and meaning found in him. And it's this that summarizes everything that's wrong with us. This is why our jobs are unfulfilling. This is why our achievements never seem to be enough. This is why our relationships become strained and complex. Our achievements are forgotten and we ultimately find ourselves empty and broken 
It's because we've prioritized and pursued knowing and loving ourselves ultimately above knowing God. And so moving on, we come to how can we know God? So we've seen that God can be known, that he's personal, and we've seen why we need to know him personally, but, but how can we know God? Especially if the state that we're in concerning him is one of separation and rejection. Well, let's go to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. Again, Matthew chapter 11, verse 25 through 30, we'll start by looking at Jesus' words in verse 27 that, that I mentioned previously. Again, in this passage, we notice that Jesus, the one who supremely shows us that God is personal, he makes a statement here in this passage saying that no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So how do we know God? Jesus reveals God to anyone he chooses to, which means that knowing God is not something that we can achieve on our own. God must be revealed. And this rests ultimately in the decision of Jesus to reveal him. So look, I know it's a popular thing to believe that in order to know God, it ultimately rests on you. It rests on us, on your decision and on your choosing to, which are important but not ultimate. Or that you've got to do certain things in order to know God, and then once you do these things, you, you can know him. Things such as attend a church or pray a certain prayer, give your money, volunteer your time, speak a certain way, certain way, live a certain way, and so forth. Or maybe you think knowing God comes through just being a good person, following your heart, and measuring up to whatever standard that you've set for yourself. Well, what Jesus is saying here is this doesn't do it. This doesn't even come close. What Jesus is saying here is that God must be revealed, and Jesus chooses to who, who he reveals God to. This is contrary to the common belief that says we should all be able to come to God or find God at any time, however we want. God must be revealed. And listen, because of our status, our condition as alienated from God and sinful, Jesus is under no obligation to reveal God to anyone. In fact, in verses 25 through 26, Jesus actually thanks the Father for hiding these things concerning salvation from the wise and understanding and revealing them to little children because it is his gracious will to do so. Again, the truth is that because of our condition as sinners and because of our first parents and us have disobeyed God and turned our backs on him, we don't deserve to know God personally. The Bible describes us as being dead in our sins, contrary to God, his enemies alienated from him, our minds being hostile to him and incapable of submitting to him, as, as Romans says. This is a huge dilemma. This is a huge problem. Because, because God can be known, it doesn't mean that we deserve to know him. And because we can know about, about God doesn't mean that we can actually know God. This must be revealed. And so again, left to ourselves, this is a tall and impossible mountain to climb. Not only are we incapable of and uninterested in knowing God personally on our own, we couldn't if we wanted to. God must be revealed. And so if this is the case, if this is our condition, our status, then how can we know God? This is why Jesus gives us hope. Look at verse 28. 
Come to me. Come to me. This is it. This is how we can know God personally. Come to Jesus. Jesus' answer here isn't a formula or a feeling that we must employ. It doesn't involve our best efforts at, or, or doing all the right things or saying all the right things. It's not even the decision to come to him that causes us to know God. It's not mechanical like that. It's personal. Jesus says, come to me. Come to a person. And this involves personal trust. And who does Jesus extend this to? Who is he choosing to reveal God to here? Continue on. All you who are weary and heavy laden. Jesus reveals God personally to those who recognize two things. One, they see who God is, transcendent, holy, unsearchable, gracious, and just. God over all things who's displayed most vividly in the person of Jesus Christ, who, as Paul said, is the fullness of the Godhead dwelling bodily. In recognizing Jesus for who he truly is, second thing, we recognize who we are. And we see that because of our sin, because of our weakness, because of our condition and disposition to God, we cannot come close to that. We're separated from him, separated by a gap of our inability and our hostility towards him. We break his laws. We reject him. We will not come to God, and this is a heavy burden. When we see this, when we come to recognize this, this is the heaviest kind of load. This is what causes a weariness in our souls that should, that should lead us into despair and condemnation. Because the reality is we deserve God's judgment for our, our self-servitude, our self-worship. We deserve punishment for our sin. We cannot come to God. And so God comes to us. Listen, prior to extending this invitation of come to me, God himself comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And while we were burdened, weak, and weary with the weight of our sin, Jesus comes into this world and gives us this promise. I will give you rest. Again, this promise doesn't require our efforts. It's not based on our decision. The promise of knowing and experiencing God and his rest is grounded simply in trusting in Jesus. In his sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection, Jesus invites those who recognize their insufficiency and the insufficiency in all other things and relationships in this world. He invites those who recognize their brokenness, their emptiness, and their inability to know or receive God's acceptance. He invites them to rest. Listen, trust in the grace that he gives and cease from the hard and futile attempts to find fulfillment and satisfaction and access to God according to your works. Listen as the lyrics of the songs that we sing, weary, burdened, wanderer, there is rest for thee at the feet of Jesus in his love so free. Listen to his message, words forever blessed. Oh, thou heavy laden, come to me and rest. Bring him all thy burdens, all thy guilt and sin. Mercy's door is open, rise up and enter in. Jesus there is waiting patiently for thee. Hear him gently calling, come, oh, come to me. Furthermore, Jesus extends another invitation and another kind of rest to all who come to him to know God. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So in addition to Jesus' sacrificial death in the place of undeserving sinners, giving them rest, Jesus extends the rest found in his perfect righteousness and a personal invitation to learn from him. See, it's through Jesus that we come to know the gentleness and the grace of God, the God who is lowly in heart, who empathizes with us, who won't break a bruised reed, who will teach us his ways and who accepts us, not on the basis of our own efforts or works, Because Jesus has accomplished the toiling work of human perfection, bearing the yoke of God's righteous and perfect standard that we could never carry, he now enables all who come personally to him to know, serve, and obey God without any fear of punishment or rejection. In knowing God through Jesus, we can obey God. We can serve God with a heart that desires him, loves him, pursues him. And so this is an important part of what it also means to know God personally. Knowing him personally is what causes us to obey him and serve him freely and joyfully. Again, John, one of Jesus' disciples, in seeking to answer this question for his readers of how they can know that they know God, he makes several statements in his letter, 1 John, that reassure us of our confidence that we know God. And so in just a few places, John states things like this. And by this, we know him. We know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning or or makes a habitual practice of sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And he also says this, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he's commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. See, knowing God personally through the finished work of Jesus Christ gives us rest in his finished work, and it also gives us transformation in our lives. It gives us a new heart, new desires. Knowing God personally enables us to to keep his commandments, to find joy and delight in obeying him and serving him. It causes us to take a different attitude towards our sin. The sin and the the things that we once loved, we now despise. We see displeasure in, and and we're not looking to them to find ultimate joy and satisfaction. And knowing God, it strengthens us to continue believing and trusting in Jesus and his finished work. It continues bringing us back to this commandment that he has given us to keep and believe the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and his perfect work in our place for our sins. This is how we can know God, through Jesus, through his perfect God-pleasing life lived in our place and through his sacrificial death on the cross in our place for our sins and his resurrection from the dead. This is what Jeremiah referred to when he spoke of the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. Again, he says, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for or because I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. 
We can know God personally through experiencing the grace of Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins, and the fullness of joy that we have in fellowship with God. This is what we've been invited to in, into through faith in Jesus, as 1 John 1, 3 tells us. Knowing God personally is what we have been created for, and through Jesus, it is as, it's what we are redeemed for. So the question for us this morning is, have you ever felt the weight and the weariness that comes from the empty pursuit of finding completeness in other things? Maybe you've never believed and trusted in the person and work of Jesus before. Do you see the burden, the inability to meet your own standards, much more God's standards? Do you feel the weight of that? Do you feel the emptiness that comes from trying to pursue satisfaction in all other things outside of God? Do you recognize that we're all incapable of knowing God personally and in in light of that, on our own, by ourselves, in light of that, do we hear the words of Jesus saying, come to him? Come to him regularly, consistently. He's the only way in which we can know God and experience fellowship with him. He's the only way the burden of our inability, the burden and the weight of our sin can be removed and forgiven. But listen, before I close, there's also something more that Jesus accomplishes for us. Something more that assures us that we can know God and will give us assurance when we wrestle with the question, even if we have trusted in Jesus, do I really know God? Because of Jesus, we can be sure that that we know God, but even more, we can be sure that God knows us. J.I. Packer, he states the following in his book, Knowing God. He says, what matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the, the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is momentous knowledge, Packer says. There is unspeakable comfort, the sort of comfort that energizes, be it said, not invenerates, in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There's tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way that I'm so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. Man, he said that a lot better than I could in two minutes. If we've placed our faith in the person and finished work of Jesus, his perfect life lived in our place and his sacrificial death and resurrection, we can rest assured that we can know God, but God knows us. And this, this is better and stronger ground to stand on for our assurance. Because listen, there are going to be moments when we feel as though God is far away or distant, where we think he wants nothing to do with us. Moments when we become blinded by the guilt and the shame of failing him or disappointing him or doubting him. Or the moments when we become tempted to try to earn his love. 
In these moments, because of what Jesus has accomplished for us, we can know that God knows me. He knows us better than we could know ourselves. And because God knows us, this gives us comfort. This gives us hope and a steadfast truth to stand on when we don't feel as though we know God. Because of Jesus, God knows us. He knows everything about us, and he still displays and pours out his love upon us because of the finished work of Jesus in our place for our sin. God knows us and is for us always. So listen, the answer to this question, can I know God personally, is the underlying answer to all of the questions that we have looked at in this series. If we can know God personally, if we know God personally, and if God knows us, then we can be assured that he exists. And much more than that, that he is near to us. Because we can know him, we can be assured that we have purpose and meaning in this life. Because we know him, we know that our suffering is woven into his good and glorious purposes for his glory and our joy. Because we know him, we can stand assured that he is the only true God through whom all people from every age, peoples, and cultures must be saved. Because we know him. We can place our ultimate hope and confidence in the person and work of Jesus who is God in the flesh, the express image of his person who reveals God to us. Because we know God, we can be confident that his word is given to us, that it's true and that it's steadfast, never failing. We can know that he speaks to us through it, making us wise into salvation, setting us apart, working in us for his glory and his good pleasure and for our joy, ultimately directing us to his plan of redemption through Jesus. As the Lord encourages us through Jeremiah's words, make knowing God your boast. Turn and repent from placing your confidence and hope in all other things and like the apostle Paul said earlier, What we read earlier, count everything as a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Turn to him, come to him, be found in him, not having a righteousness of your own, but one that is through faith in his death and resurrection. And be assured in his promise, you will find rest for your souls, joy and fellowship with the God who you were created to know. So this morning, as we transition to the next portion of our service and reflecting on the broken body of Jesus and his shed blood, which was for this new covenant where we could know God, this morning, take a moment to reflect. If you're wearied and burdened and find yourself wondering, looking for satisfaction and purpose and meaning and and trying to know all other things, Take a moment to to, to turn to God, to see the promise of Jesus and come to him. Come to him so that you might have life, forgiveness, joy, reconciliation with God, and peace in your soul. Today, if you are not familiar with who Jesus is, or what God says about him, or what he says about himself, and this promise that he makes, if you aren't sure that you can stand upon that, take a moment to, to, to read these scriptures. Read some of the passages about what God says about how you can know him. As people come forward for communion, take a look and see God's people, how they place trust and confidence in knowing him. 
see that these are the people that God himself says he knows and loves in spite of their weaknesses and failures and shortcomings. Know that you too, Jesus can reveal God to you. Pray to him, cry out to him as you remain at your seat if you are still wrestling with these truths. We'll take a moment to reflect and come, come back for communion.